Well, good morning, Mission View. My name is uh, Josh Chandler. I'm an elder here. Uh, I am not the lead pastor. Uh, that would be the guy behind the lead guitar today. For those of you who don't know, uh, Matt spent the first part of his life, or better part of his life, uh, dreaming of being a rock star. He's pretty good at it. He's pretty good at it. We have been blessed to have him lead our team here, and uh, it's a blessing sometimes to let him get back behind that guitar because he loves it so much. Uh, if you enjoyed that, actually, uh, Monday the 10th, where's Amy at? It's the 10th, right? Uh, Dwell Ministries, uh, we're going to have our kickoff event. It's going to be a time of prayer uh, and worship here at the church, and uh, Matt's actually going to be leading worship that night too. So if you enjoyed that worship set, come for the prayer, uh, enjoy the worship with Matt uh, as well. Um, as you guys know, we have been going through uh, the book of Mark uh, for the better part of about 10 months now. Um, and as we've seen in that gospel, Mark kind of skips the Christmas story, uh, jumps right to kind of the meat of what Jesus is doing. Um, uh, the, the first event in the gospel is his baptism with John the Baptist. Uh, we hear this audible voice from heaven uh, that says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And from there, uh, Mark kind of goes into revealing who Jesus is to us, not by what he says, by what he does. In all of these events, the miracles after miracles, healing after healing, exorcism after exorcism, uh, they're revealing who Jesus is by what he's doing. And all of the witnesses uh, that see this, they have varied events, right? You've got the people of Galilee who are seeing uh, this man perform miracles, do things they've never seen before, say things they've never heard before, and they're trying to figure out who is this man. And they're following him, wanting to get more of this wisdom, wanting to see more of these miracles. Uh, and then you have um, the religious leaders um, whose position uh, at that time was being threatened by this man who was doing these miraculous things. And so their response was to call him a heretic, um, to, to be afraid uh, and to start to protect themselves from them. And then you have the disciples um, who we're going to be looking at today. I'm calling them kind of naive understudies uh, this morning. They had a, this front row seat to who Jesus is, who God is, um, but they're really having a hard time reconciling who this man is, who... You know, they've correctly identified as the Messiah, but they're having a hard time reconciling what they're seeing with what they were expecting. Uh, and so a few weeks ago, we reached a, a really nice pivot point uh, in the gospel uh, where we moved from kind of Jesus's public ministry uh, into a time when he's really going to be pouring into these disciples. That was in uh, chapter eight, verse 29, uh, when Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And you may remember uh, Peter uh, kind of gets to the head of the class and, and he gets the answer right, um, then falls back a little bit from there. We're going to kind of get in, into that a little bit more again today. Um, but today, Jesus is going to be spending time with the disciples and he's going to be dealing with the idea of greatness. What does it mean truly to be great? And so uh, we're going to be looking at our text this morning, Mark 9, going to be verses 30 through 41. So as you're turning there, I always encourage you to bring your Bibles. I prefer the ones that have pages you can flip, but I realize we all use these electronic ones now. It's a little easier to find the books, Mark 9. But I do want to give you a quick heads up um, for those of you crazy note takers. And, and you know who you are, the ones that are trying to guess the fill-ins and in, in the notes and the points. Um, I'm looking at a few of you. Um, I'll get to the points, I promise. They're going to be at the back half of the, of, of the sermon. So don't get distracted. Stay with me in the first. We're going to dig into some of the word a little bit, and then we're going to get to the three points, all right? So just be patient. Um, and let's, let's pray before we, before we dive in this morning. Father God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you, Father, that it is a light uh, unto our path. And Father, so often um, 
we dig into this word and, and, and we, uh, we look for answers. And today, Father, you have, uh, you have a passage before us that is just clear, uh, practical knowledge. And it's, it's really about of us just listening, uh, obeying, and applying, Father. So I pray this morning that we would be encouraged by your word, uh, that we would walk out of here refreshed and renewed uh, and ready to walk out your word uh, in our daily lives, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be in Mark 9, uh, verse 30. And so we're going to read through the whole passage first, and then we'll back up. So it says, verse 30, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. God's word for us today. Um, jumping right into to verse 30, it says, they, uh, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. So to date, uh, Jesus' ministry of about two years has been very public uh, in and amongst the people of Galilee, uh, working miracles, as I said, teaching. Um, and really over these next six months, Jesus is going to be withdrawing from that public ministry uh, and making his way to Jerusalem, ultimately to be crucified. And, and during this next six months, he's going to be focusing a lot on his disciples uh, and teaching them. And it's, it's really why we've called this portion of the book of Mark GPS. It's really a great set of just practical directions on life, uh, things that we can uh, incorporate into our daily walk uh, that draw us closer to Jesus, help us to accomplish what Jesus wants us to here on earth. Um, and it says, so he was teaching them, uh, verse 31, what was he teaching them? Saying, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, the story might sound familiar to you. There's actually three times in the book of Mark where Jesus predicts his coming death. Um, in all three cases, we see the disciples kind of uh, with this really wrong response or a response of really not understanding what Jesus is talking about. Uh, and then Jesus uses that opportunity uh, as a teaching lesson. And so we saw that first one. Uh, I, I read it earlier in, in verse uh, eight, or sorry, chapter 8, verse 31. Matt taught on that a couple of days ago, uh, or a couple of weeks ago. Uh, feels like a few days ago. Um, a couple of weeks ago. And that, that's the one where um, Peter hears this news of Jesus' death and then rebukes him. And uh, we remember what Jesus did in that case, called him Satan, get behind me, gave him a good uh, practical lesson. So we've got a second occurrence here in chapter 9, which we're going to dig into today. And then in a few weeks, Matt will hit the third one uh, in chapter 10. And that chapter 10 is really a great pivot point in the book where we then move from that teaching 
into really um, Jesus's crucifixion and his, his journey to the cross. Um, so wanted to throw that up there, give you some context. You know, um, there's an old Chinese proverb uh, that says, the man who asks a question is a fool for a minute, but the man who does not ask a question is a fool for life. And unfortunately, our disciples here in this case are kind of falling into that second that second group um, and, and wanted to look into, you know, why is it that they're so baffled? Uh, maybe you've been in that situation before. Um, maybe it's a, a work meeting. You're sitting with 11 of your colleagues and your bosses talking about something really important uh, that directly relates to something that you're working on or some success or maybe it's in school and, and you find yourself in that moment knowing that you're not clearly understanding what's going on but you're, you, you don't want to ask a question. Maybe it's fear of getting a question wrong, asking that stupid question, having your peers laugh at you, um, making a bad front in front of your boss. I don't know. But the di disciples are kind of in that place. Um, and, you know, in fairness to them, uh, they didn't have the whole of scriptures, which we do, right? They didn't have the benefit of looking backwards and understanding um, exactly how this was all going to play out, right? Um, so from the disciples' perspective, just looking at the Old Testament, um, without the hindsight, um, they're looking for this coming Messiah and power and Jesus's words kind of have this really strange, what you're going to die. That doesn't reconcile with my expectations. What, what I thought was going to happen here. I am thinking a Messiah was coming in power. You're telling me you're going to die. This doesn't reconcile. Um, and so, um, they're divergent, um, from this idea that, you know, um, God's going to suffer and die. I'm going to encourage you in your personal study this week um, to look at messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. We're going to look at a few, but these are prophecies in the Old Testament that talked about who Jesus would be, who the Messiah would be, what he would do. And, and again, as, as we're going to see, there's a divergent picture of this suffering Savior and of a conquering king. And so the disciples right now are in the middle of this trying to figure out what's going on. So I've chosen a couple to look at for a little bit more context. We're going to look at Isaiah 9. If you want to turn there, kind of find out... Um, Psalms in the middle of your Bible, flip back a couple, couple verses, Isaiah 9. We're going to look at a, a messianic text here that looks at Jesus as conquering king. So Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 8. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's easy to see how a group of, of Jewish men uh, whose people have been oppressed for centuries, currently sitting under Roman occupation, would be expectantly looking forward to this coming king, this conquering king. And so that is where their minds are at. Um, and they're, they're ignoring maybe Isaiah 53, which is another one for your study this week, that talks about this coming suffering savior. But, but isn't, that, isn't that human nature? 
um, for us to look at the positive and kind of suppress the stuff that we maybe don't want to hear. I mean, let, let's take a quick poll. How many of you frequently encourage yourselves with Philippians 4.13? We all kind of know that verse, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? I mean, I draw on that one all the time. That one's in my back pocket any point in the day when I feel like I'm struggling. How about Matthew 16.24? Anybody? If anyone come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Don't really think about that one too much, right? So it's, it's human nature to tend toward what we want, what we feel, those things that kind of fit our agenda. And that's really where the, 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 the disciples are at. And I also want you to notice something else that, that, um, that Jesus is actually saying and communicating in his words that is lending the disciples to think about Jesus, the conquering king. And that is the use of the, the, the self-designation son of man. Matt mentioned this um, a few weeks ago. Um, Jesus actually uses it in all three of those texts where he predicts his death. Um, so Matt referenced it. Um, that phrase is not lost on the disciples. When we see the terms son of God and son of man, it's natural and actually it's, it's right for us to think of those as references to Christ's deity and Christ's humanity. Right? That's natural. But there's actually more to it. Um, Jesus referred to himself as the son of man more than 80 times uh, in the Gospels. Nobody else ever referred to him as that. He referred to him himself as that. And he's not arbitrarily using this as, as something that he's just plucked out of the air. He's using it purposely because the Old Testament anticipated the arrival of the Son of Man. Um, we're going to flip to Daniel 7, a little bit further back in your Bibles. Uh, this is a great prophetic chapter. We actually studied this as a church, I don't know, about 18 months ago. Daniel chapter 7. We'll look at verse 13 and 14. Um, Daniel sharing about one of his visions says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, and here it is, the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is is a picture of Jesus, the conquering king. And when Jesus uses that phrase, son of man, it's descriptive of his majesty and his glory. And as a result, the disciples recognizing this, they, they just can't square that with what he's now telling them about betrayal and suffering and death. They just didn't get it. I mean, afterwards they would, but at this point, it's just far too paradoxical for them to grasp. They don't understand how the majesty and glory that is represented in the son of man Reconciles with Jesus telling them that he's going to die. And the crazy thing is, they're simply too afraid to ask for further clarification. And so they just sit there and internalize it. I mean, can, can you picture it though, really, right? Picture, uh, hey Matthew, why don't you ask him a question? I'm, I'm not asking him. Peter, you ask him. He called me Satan last time. I'm not asking him. Like, Thomas, hey Thomas, you ask him. No, no, I doubt he'd answer me anyway. I mean, like, they're, they're sitting there, like, afraid to ask any clarifying questions. They really missed out on an opportunity here, but it, it's really not unlike us. And so we can cut them some slack, right? They were learning on the job, didn't understand that Christ had to first come as a suffering Savior to reconcile us unto himself, to pay that penalty for our sin that we couldn't pay. Let's not forget, though, that we, like the disciples, are still looking expectantly forward 
to Jesus, the conquering king. The one described in Isaiah 9 and Daniel 7, as we talked about, Jesus has yet to fulfill those promises, but he will. Jesus has promised he is coming again, and when he comes again, he will be the conquering king, coming in power. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That day is coming, amen? All right. So now that we understand the disciples' headspace a bit, um, let's take a look at this question of greatness that comes up, and that begins in verse 33. It says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, I want you to notice the definite article there, kind of denotes that we as the reader should know what house they're talking about. doesn't really clarify, but if you look back in verse 1, um, Peter's house was actually in Capernaum. We know that they had spent time at Peter's house, so possible, likely that they're at Peter's house. doesn't really say, don't want to infer, but kind of fun to think about. Um, maybe at Peter's house, we know they're in a house in an intimate setting, and he looks at his disciples and he asks them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So, just to set this straight, Jesus tells them, again, I'm going to die. Their response is, hey, there's this kingdom coming. Which one of us do you think is going to be the greatest? Human nature. They're busy holding on to that idea of conquering king. Uh, they're busy debating. The ESV here translates the word discussing. Uh, the King James actually used the words uh, disputed. The idea here is that there's a good healthy debate here. And if you think back to the last couple of weeks, is there anything that you can think about that might have been spurring this discussion amongst uh, the disciples? All right, so Peter, James, and John, what did they get to do? They got to go up on a mountain and effectively see God in all of his glory, the transfiguration, right? So here's three guys, right? You ever been in that situation where the boss chooses you or chooses somebody else to do something cool? So Peter, James, and John, they're coming down. They're, they're feeling pretty good about themselves, right? Um, doesn't say, again, I'm speculating, a little uh, sanctified imagination, but I'm picturing them walking them down the road. It says they're going from, you know, uh, through Galilee. They're making their way back to Jerusalem. They're walking on these dirt roads. Jesus, as the, the rabbi, would usually be kind of up in front. Um, so picture maybe two or three wide and kind of going back. And then there's some disciples kind of back in the back going, hey, I think I'm going to be the greatest. They're just missing it. They're just really missing it. Um, and then, right, the other thing that, that's probably puffing them up a bit is what happened after the transfiguration. Came down the hill, they found the other nine disciples doing what? Failing at an exorcism. So I'm picturing like, you know, Peter, James, and John going, hey, we just got the transfiguration. You guys couldn't even get that exorcism done. We're, we're pretty great. Um, and uh, man, just <laughs> human nature. And so here Jesus is. Now it's funny, why does Jesus ask the question? I mean, maybe he heard him walking down the road, but why does Jesus ask the question? It's not like he didn't know, right? He knows our hearts. He knows everything. Why did Jesus ask the question? You ever had a parent ask you a question that you knew the answer to, you knew they knew the answer to, and you're just like, oh. I can't tell you how many times we do that with our kids, right? Just happened last night. Who made this meth in the bathtub? I mean, that, that's kind of what they're feeling at that moment, right? Um, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> um, he asked the question to shine light on their pride uh, and to make them think about their misguided, how misguided their, their discussion was. Uh, and then he blows their mind uh, with our first point. So those of you note takers out there, you can get your pens ready. I'm finally there. Uh, point one, uh, greatness requires humility. Verse 35, um, he says, and he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
Now, how contradictory is that? They're talking about greatness, right? Picture this. You, you, you pay to go to this great conference. Uh, Tom Brady's going to be speaking on greatness. I'm sorry, I tried to think of a Browns player. I couldn't come up with one. So let's go with, let's go with Tom Brady. Um, I know it's hard. It's, I mean, Bernie Kosar, I, it just didn't work. So Tom Brady comes and, and he's going to be doing this conference on greatness. And you sit down, you pay a lot of money, you sit down, and Tom Brady, Tom Brady says, um, if you want to be first, you must be last. If you want to be the greatest, you got to be a servant. That doesn't make, that's, that's not what Tom Brady would say. I guarantee you. I've never paid for that conference, but I'm pretty sure that's not what he would say. But this is what Jesus is telling the disciples. Um, it doesn't make sense. Except in God's economy, it does. And, and that's where we've just got to, we've got to change our thinking, right? The world is telling us greatness is this. God right here is telling us, no, greatness is this. Now, I, I love Matt shared the same passage a couple of weeks ago. I, I'm going to go back to it. It's Philippians 2, because it's such a great passage on humility, what it looks like uh, and how we can accomplish it. So Philippians 2, we're going to do verses 3 through 9. Verses 3 through 9. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. I don't know, Josh. That's a pretty hard ask. Yep, it sure is. Um, but he, he doesn't leave us hanging, right? Um, he says something great. Look at verse 5. Paul tells us that this mind is already ours. How? In Christ. Not in the flesh. Not in our pride. Not in what we can do. But in Christ Jesus. And, and isn't that what the Christian life is, is all about? God accomplishing in us that which we could never accomplish ourselves. Not by our own might or our own strength but by the gift of the Holy Spirit that he gives us at that moment, we are moved from Adam into Christ. And that work of sanctification begins. And then he goes a step further, right? Not only do you have this in Christ, but I'm going to tell you why you should be humble. It says Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, the great kenosis verse, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul gives us the, the, the ultimate example of humility here. If Christ could humble himself, step out of heaven, become a man, the creator of the universe, becoming one of his created, and doing so with the knowledge that his creation was going to reject him, Put him on a cross and kill him. If Christ could take that huge step, surely I can look at somebody else and look at them as more significant than myself. Right? It's not that big of an ask when you put it in that context. Um, and that, that's our encouragement. So greatness requires humility. Point number two, greatness shows no partiality. Greatness shows no partiality. Look at verse 36. It says, And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. 
remember, it's an intimate setting, probably in Peter's house. Um, he's just having a, a nice little teaching session with his disciples. Looks across the room. There's a little child. Asks the little child to come over. The Bible says he embraces the child, puts the child on his lap, uh, and then gives this lesson. Now, I'm, I'm not huge on object lessons from the pulpit, but it's biblical. Jesus did it right here. Um, and But why, why a child? What, what is it about a child that makes this application point so appropriate? See, a child can do nothing for you. Remember, we're talking about pride here and, and how great am I and what does my greatness look like. Uh, there's nothing that a child can do for you. A child can't pay you back. A child's not going to go out and go give some big speech about how great you are, about how awesome your service and, and leadership is. Um, children, out of all people in the world, are the best lit litmus test as to whether you are on the quest for true greatness or whether you're really just angling for the praise of man. And Jesus is really calling that out here. Um, I mean, ask our children's workers uh, how much praise uh, and public recognition they've received from our children in our ministry. Now, that's not what they're in it for, but those children aren't out on the streets talking about how great our children's workers are. Our motives should not be based on what's in it for us. And aren't we guilty of that? You know, what, what's in it for me? We invite that neighbor over for dinner because he owns a boat. Right? We, we go to lunch with that coworker because of what they can do for our personal career development. You know, once again, Jesus moves us beyond the physical and takes us to the heart level. What are our motives? It's not about the outside. It's about the heart. Are we doing it out of love and obedience to Christ? Are we after some personal benefit? And as Christians, we need to be viewing our lives through this lens. All right, that brings us to the third section. Uh, point three, greatness unifies. Uh, verse 38, John, John said to them, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Man, these poor disciples, they just keep getting it wrong. Like one thing after another. Here's John finally stepping out saying, I got one. I'm going I'm to get it. Watch this, guys. Hey, Jesus. It's like one step forward, two steps back. Just reminds us that uh, even if the best of men are men at best. And John, is here he is ready to start the first Christian denomination. Um, but, but how many of you in reading verse 38, I know I did, immediately found yourselves like, well, yeah, what's that guy think he's doing? He's not one of us. How, how, who's this guy casting out demons? No, I did. It's, it's human nature. But God help the church that someday we might wise up to the fact that we are all serving the same Lord. May God help us to identify the true enemy. And it's not the church down the street. We should be working with them for the cause of Christ. The church is so often busy competing and fighting with each other. But we're really not doing much to damage the enemy, are we? 
God help us. May the Church of Jesus Christ really get together and learn to love one another, learn to get along with one another. You know, there's so much more that we can accomplish together. Um, you know, when I first came to Mission View, the fact that we prayed for other ministries was just so odd to me. And it wasn't that the church background I came out of was blatantly saying, hey, we're the only ones that have it together. But that's effectively what the, the culture was. Um, let me let you in on a little secret. God is way bigger than any one church, than any one congregation. So much bigger than any one denomination. To have the arrogance to believe that, you know, we are the only ones that have this together. Us four, no more, close the door. That is just dangerous. And it's counterproductive to the gospel. You know, being, being protective is one thing, right? We, we want to make sure that doctrine is sound, that the word of God is being preached and taught. But being restrictive is just unacceptable. I pray that we will continue as a church uh, to be one that multiplies the impact of the gospel by striving for unity uh, with other believers. And I know as a church, that is our goal. That's why we work with so many of these mission partners in, in, uh, around the world. Together, I mean, think about what we do in Guatemala, for example. You know, putting a, the, the, the best team that we could of people from this room together, we could do some cool stuff in Guatemala. But we could nowhere near accomplish what we, what we did by partnering with World Help, who's partnering with an organization in Guatemala, to really make an impact. And, and that can be done right here in our local community, too. Right? Power in numbers, it takes a village. Um, so the, the tragedy of all of this, of course, um, is that we see ourselves here. Pride uh, rears its ugly head all the time. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal a, a saying from Matt here when he says, Pride blinds us to our own blindness. It's not a matter of if pride will show itself in our lives. It's a matter of when and where. And we need to be aware of that. How many of you have had this thought before? Um, I'm going to get my life together a little bit more. And then, and then I'm going to get back to going to church. Or I'm going I'm to fix this little thing in my life. Um, I'm going I'm to stop cussing as much. I'm going to maybe treat my neighbors a little bit better. Pray a little bit more. I'm going to stop doing that thing. And then I'll be over. Then, then I'm going I'm to get back into church. That's just pride. All of that is, hey, what am I going to do? I'm going to drive myself to be better, to get closer to God. That is just pride working in our lives. Now, let me steal another Matt one. Did you know that there is absolutely nothing, nothing you can do that is going to make God love you any more than he does right now? And did you know that there's absolutely nothing that you have done or will do that will make God love you any less than he does right now? That's a crazy thought. That is just our pride, our desire to be awesome and to, to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, lying to us. Uh, in fact, it's, it's actually counterproductive because did you know that we, we actually can't become more godly without God? It, 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 it just can't happen. There's, there's this horrible thing that happened when we were born. We inherited this sin nature. We inherited this sin that started with Adam that put us in a place where we were sinners. The, the, the Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, the, no, no one is righteous, no, not one. It says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
there's this huge chasm between where we are and where God is. And, and mankind for generations and eternity uh, has been just trying to bridge that chasm themselves. That, that chasm themselves. And, and it can't be done. But God, rich in mercy, sent his son to live that perfect life, to do that thing that we couldn't do. The Bible says the wages of that sin is death. So that we didn't have to pay that death, Christ came, satisfied the obligation, paid that penalty on our behalf by going to that cross. And then here's the crazy thing that happens. We believe and accept in that. And as if that is not enough, he gives us his Holy Spirit that comes and lives inside of us. And then that work of sanctification begins. And so as we see these poor disciples, right? Two steps forward, one step back. It's the Holy Spirit in us that then starts to help peel away at that pride. Work away at those things that are working in us to say, oh, I can do this. I, I can do this. Man, God has so much more for you than you could ever imagine. His plans for you are so awesome and amazing. The things that he has laid out for you from the beginning of time are going to blow your mind. And we can't, we can't do that without that Holy Spirit. So my, my invitation to you this morning, my encouragement to you this morning, you know, Jesus didn't cast the disciples out. I mean, we're going to keep seeing it for a few more chapters. Um, they just keep getting it wrong. And, and, and Jesus didn't cast them out. He just, he was patient. He kept working with them. He didn't quit on them. And ultimately, he uses these men to change the world. And you know what? He wants to do the same with us. So let's get to it, would you? Join me, join us. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that uh, what we heard today, it's so simple. Father, it's not easy, but it is simple. And Father, we need your Holy Spirit uh, to empower us, uh, to drive us to accomplish these things. And Father, we call on you. Uh, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would remove those things that are blinding us. Father, that you would uh, reveal where pride is rearing its head in our lives. And Father, uh, remove those things. Enable us with your Holy Spirit, Father. We love you. Uh, we want to be about your business and about your work. Father, we pray that you would make that happen uh, in each of our lives uh, as we walk out of here this morning. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Everyone agreeing, said, Amen.